Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Tom Chi from At One Ventures. Hey, Tom. Hey there. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Just had lunch. Yeah, that's great. Tom Chi has worked in a wide range of roles from astrophysical researcher to Fortune 500 consultant to com corporate executive developing new hardware and software products and services. He plays a significant role in established projects with global reach, including Microsoft Outlook, Yahoo Search, and scaled new projects from conception to significance, like Yahoo Answers from zero to 90 million users. Tom has pioneered and practiced a unique approach to rapid prototyping, visioning, and leadership that can jumpstart innovative new ideas as well as move large organizations at unprecedented speeds. These approaches have benefited over a dozen industry leading companies. He most recently served as head of product experience at Google X, developing technology such as Google Glass and Google's self-driving cars. His current focus is working with social and environmental entrepreneurs around the globe rebooting the fundamental frameworks of entrepreneurship itself and coaching and teaching a limited number of values aligned organizations and leaders. So Tom, I'm uh, really happy to have this opportunity to visit with you and uh, talk about uh, several of the projects you're engaged in and working on. Uh, but before we, before we get into uh, kind of the latest and greatest that you're, you're engaged with, let me just ask you a bit about your background and backstory. How did you get into technology in the first place? What first uh, drew you to the tech arena? Mm. I mean, I, I started building things from a very young age. So like four or five. So anything that was around I guess a lot of people have stories about like, oh, I was very mechanically inclined. I like to take things apart. I never just took things apart to take them apart. I was always taking them apart because I could see some other thing you could make with them. Um, so I started that from quite early and built a bunch of really, I don't know, sophisticated for my years kind of things from the very early days. So how did I start? It just, I just started. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's in your blood, so to speak. You've been at it for a while. Um, let me ask you, can you just describe uh, succinctly what uh, you and your team are doing at, uh, at One Ventures and, and what is unique about your approach as a finance vehicle? Yeah, we're a venture firm that is focused on helping humanity become a net positive to nature. So we kind of see the goal of our work and hopefully the goal of the larger economy you know, over the course of human history is to go kind of create a world where human presence on the planet makes nature healthier because we're here, as opposed to um, the crazy damage that we're doing right now, or just being more efficient around that damage, or getting to some sort of uneasy truce, you know, through some level of sustainability. I think we should put the bar much higher and say, well, if we're here, then we should really contribute. And we define nature as air, water, soil, biodiversity. So you got to ask the question, how could you redesign industry so you build health in those four areas as opposed to death? And how do you, how do you find uh, this is you know, either resonating or perhaps you're finding resistance with some of the established uh, companies and interests and sectors out there? Yeah, you shouldn't worry too much about that. Like, um, you know, there, I'm paraphrasing Buckminster Fuller a little bit, but he basically said something like, don't bother fighting systems, obsolete them. So we're basically building the, you know, the foundation of the next economy. And we're doing it in a way where the unit economics and the environmental economics are superior. So most of the game so far has been better and better unit economics, but worse and worse environmental costs. And that's how we have been pushing the economy. But if you basically say, no, we're only going to invest in things that have both better unit economics and better environmental economics, then you start 
a different kind of trajectory. Yeah, that's great. I love that uh, Bucky Fuller quote, and I'll uh, track it down and include that in the show notes because it really is uh, apropos for our discussion today. You know, uh, Tom, you and I met last summer at a conference at which you were talking about the use of uh, drones to plant trees to the tune of millions per week uh, in certain regions of the world. And I, I just want to ask, uh, getting into some of your different technologies and projects, uh, could you summarize for our audience that particular technology and, uh, the impact you've already had thus far with it? Yeah. So what I mostly talked about during that session last year was the planting side of things, but um, the team has also been working on monitoring and maintenance as well. And altogether, it represents a radical reduction in the cost to be able to um, restore ecosystems. And yeah, I know a lot of questions come up, like we never plant monocultures. We're always planting a, a variety of species as recommended by folks that know that terrain well, whether that be local ecologists, indigenous peoples, that sort of thing. Uh, and we, we do so in a way where we'll plant the first stage of ecological succession, and then after a couple of years, we might come back and plant the, a follow-on stage of ecological succession. Because the, the most resilient ecosystem is the really healthy, diverse ones. Uh, and those are also the ones that lead to the most permanent carbon storage. Those are also the ones that have the most co-benefits in terms of their production. So... Yeah, that's broadly what the company does. Um, since we we um, since you last heard about the work, the team has continued to improve the tech and is the leading player in the world in terms of reducing the cost of restoration per hectare. And they started out with you know single hectare, you know tens of hectares type projects. They've moved through hundreds of hectares, thousands of hectares. They're working on tens of thousands of hectare projects right now and we're bidding on some 100,000 hectare projects. So we're getting to a pretty interesting restoration scale. What are you guys finding in terms of uh, success rates with uh, germination of seeds and uh, you know, maturation and all of that with, with the technological approach? Yeah, so the simplest answer is that we do as well as nature does in the same system. Um, and we're focused both on the above ground diversity and below ground diversity. So we'll sample things like uh, what's the soil microbiome like, you know, and what would healthy look like here? And what's the mix of, you know, uh, mycelia that you want to have beneath the soils? And we will go and uh, prep it to both restore above and below. Um, and yeah, I mean, overall, like we're getting really good traction in terms of the types of um, quality of restoration that's coming up. So the folks that we've worked with look at the quality of restoration that we're doing and it's significantly exceeding their expectations. So I, I'm just saying we're, we're kind of doing fine on that front. I know that folks want to go narrow it down to like germination rates, but when you jump into that, it actually gets a lot more complicated because tropical rainforest, nature, Nature planting a seed in that environment might have an 80% germination rate. Boreal forest might be 15%. And like we do roughly the same as nature in those settings. We're not able to plant in a boreal setting and get a 90% germination rate, but neither can nature. So like when the thing spans from 15 to 90%, then and people are like, tell me the germination rate. It's like, that's a little too imprecise. Yeah, that makes sense actually. And I'm curious, are you, is that particular enterprise uh, tapping into the global carbon markets? And is that one of the finance levers that's being utilized? So we are not being paid for carbon credits um, at this moment. I think that um, as the business gets into the 100,000 million hectare kind of planting scale, which is something that will be at within, you know, I'll say about 12 months, so not too far from now, then I think we become very interesting in terms of folks that want to play in the carbon markets uh, because the, the cost of, of uh, carbon sequestration per ton uh, via biological sequestration 
tends to be very, very cheap compared to technical sequestration. So technical sequestration like direct air capture or you know, retrofitting a point source emission or smokestack, um, you know, that's kind of in the 50 to 200 ton, you know, dollars per ton range. Biosequestration is oftentimes less than $10 a ton, and we're kind of in the range of less than a dollar a ton. So I think from the pure, you know, cost perspective, we're very attractive. Now, the reason that biosequestration hasn't already taken over the world and the folks, you know, people, you know, are spending a bunch of time on technical sequestration still is that uh, technical sequestration is good in terms of um, additionality. So if I grab stuff out of the air and then put it in the ground, it's clearly additional, like, you know, clearly something has moved. It's good in terms of measurability because you know exactly how much flowed through this pipe or exactly how many kilograms of material you collected. And um, depending on how you do it, it can be good in terms of permanence of storage. And biosequestration, depending on the approach, can be much weaker on those fronts. But we believe that using the approach that we're doing, that the additionality will be clear because there'll be a lot of places that were degraded ecosystems. And after we work on them, there'll be you know, um, you know, very healthy ecosystems. So that's clear additionality. We believe that we can get um, great measurability because we've already been working on the machine learn algorithms to be able to go identify species and quantify carbon in the landscape. Um, so I think we're going to get you as accurate in terms of the, the measurability. And then relative to the permanence, it really there, it's less about how deep can you bury underground. It's much more about how robust is that ecosystem. Because the more robust the ecosystem, then the more permanent the storage, basically. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So where can folks go to learn more about the, the tree planting uh, technology that you're working with? Online. Yeah, the, the, the trees are the sexy part, so everybody wants to talk about the trees, but we do also plant grasses and shrubs and every kind of uh, species that is supposed to be in that environment, uh, and also trees for sure. Uh, you can find out about it at dendra.io, D-E-N-D-R-A.io. Great. Yep. And then I want to ask you also about the coral planting robot uh, project that you're working with. I, I understand that's uh, in partnership with the National Science Foundation. Is that right? Yeah, we got an NSF grant to build a coral planting robot. So we started in, in June of this year. Uh, as of October 8th, we did our first successful pilot test. And now we're doing, yeah, where we planted one. Now that said, um, we planted one, which is not the rate that we want to be able to go plant at, but the one that we planted, we planted it in less than 15 seconds, and we're replacing a task that humans take about five to 10 minutes to do. And we, we think that, uh, and that wasn't even fully automated yet. There was like some human in the loop steering the thing. So we believe that once we do some, some basic feed forward automation, this is even before we get into complex control theory, like we can get the planting time down to more like three seconds. And that means we're replacing a five to 10 minute task with a three second task. We're re replacing a task that uh, human scuba divers need to do with something that a robot can do. So we can also using manufacturing scale produce a lot of these robots. And the reason I'm talking about scale in this way is we are, you know, the, the loss of coral reefs is a major crisis right now. We are losing you know about 1.3 hectares per minute right now globally and uh, a hectare is a uh, hundred by hundred meters so you can think about like the biggest coral reef you've ever seen imagine that disappearing every single minute now of course it's not all contiguous it's across the whole globe so it's a little crust here a little thing here some bad stormage there store damage there a bleaching event in the summer of so and so but when you when you average that out and even it out then it's we're losing a at a rate of 1.3 hectares a minute. And if you look at the best ways that we know how to restore right now, it takes us about a decade to restore a hectare. So, um, you know, if you lose it in a minute and it takes you 10 years to build it back, then we clearly have a lot of uh, orders of magnitude to get through before we can be anything close to the rate of loss. So the, the whole point of 
taking a 10 minute task and bringing it down to three seconds is well, you get a couple orders of magnitude there. And then through, so let's say you get two, two and a half orders of magnitude there. And we have about six orders of magnitude to close. So we're like a million times too slow at this stuff. Um, you know, you get 100x just in the speed of planting changes. And then you pop into, you know, robotic manufacturing scale and you, you pump out 10,000 of these robots, 1,000 of these robots. And we purposely designed the robot to be relatively inexpensive. So the one that has done the successful, you know, pilot uh, run, the total robot right now costs less than, you know, $3,800. And this is in, compared, uh, in comparison to a lot of marine robotics research platforms, easily cost half a million, million, two million dollars, right? So if every one of your robots costs $2 million, how many are you really going to put into service? Very few. But if we can get this thing, if we're already under 4,000 and we can push the price of this robot down to less than 2,000 or 1,500, then a couple million dollars goes and funds a lot of this stuff. And all of a sudden it's not that uh, inconceivable for, for us to put you know 10,000 coral planting robots to work around the world. In that kind of scenario and model, where does the revenue and, and funding come from, or where do you anticipate it will come from as that scales up? Yeah, I mean, there are some countries that are spending, um, you know, reasonably aggressively to be able to try to protect or restore their reefs. So Australia, Thailand, you know, those sorts of places. Um, you know, there are other places where more at the hospitality scale, you know, like a hotel chain that is losing their coral reefs and they would love to bring them back because there's just direct tourism revenue associated with that. So I do think that there is some market here, but the reason that this is grant funded as opposed to venture funded right now is there's significant market development to be had before you can really quote unquote capitalize on the market. But the, the general gist here is very similar to, um, you know, tree planting or eco restoration drones where we can, we can bring down that, that cost of ecological restoration by a factor of 10. You know, we can go in here and we can bring down the cost and speed of um, coral restoration by a factor of 10, 100, 1000. And that enables a lot of different avenues in terms of affordability, you know, a rich donor who wants to put in 20 million to go protect an entire coastline, all that becomes possible if you're able to go bring down the, the effective, um, you know, economics on it. Yeah, very interesting. I would imagine that one of the other potential constraints that is, is being thought about uh, is the, the farming and production of the baby coral, right? So as all the technology scaling, you're going to have to get all these little babies from somewhere. How does that look and how does that get uh, located around the world? Yeah, so there actually already are um, coral nurseries, uh, and some of them are tied to the pet trade. Um, but, you know, and so some of that can be put to work, but, but also I'm an investor in a company called Coral Vita, which is basically working on a next generation coral, coral nursery. And this includes, um, you know, like sexual reproduction um, and trying to go use some of the best techniques to be able to, to produce heat resistant coral through selective breeding. It includes asexual reproduction in terms of a approach called hyperfragmentation, which is developed by Dave, Dave Vaughn from the Million Corals Project uh, that can speed up the growth of hard corals between 20 to 50 X. And then some automation changes to be able to make it so that we're able to um, you know, create industrial scale in terms of um, how much we can grow baby corals that would be suitable to bring back into the environment. Yeah, very interesting. Now, let me um, let me ask a question that I imagine you know some of our audience might be wondering. Uh, so, you know, here I am thinking about the myriad of uh, dystopic uh, science fiction movies and stories I've come across. Do you do you picture a future where we've got drones running around all over the place, flying around and, and swimming around in the oceans? And 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 what do you say to folks when they maybe experience a bit of discomfort with that kind of a of a future vision? Well, 
I wish that we already lived in the world that we valued the ecosystem at the level that we could just have people go out there and do all this work. Yeah. That'd be great. Um, I would say at least how things have gone so far, it doesn't seem like that's the case. And, you know, look, there's a lot of folks that are trying to close the gap. They're like, well, if we could go quantify ecosystem services and then get insurance companies in on things and, you know, whatever, the 50 techniques, then that's basically them trying to go change the economics to be able to allow humans to get in there and do that work. Because otherwise, how are you going to pay those humans? But like, I kind of, you know, am on the sidelines watching this talked about for 20 years. And I'm like, doesn't seem to totally be working yet. Because it's not like, you know, every year that we're around, we're 10 times better at restoring forests or, or coral reefs. Like we just haven't gotten better at it. And we're not doing a great job of it already. So when you're starting from a poor baseline, and you're not getting much better at it, as a system as a species, then you're like, Hmm, we probably need a plan B on this. Yeah. And ergo, let's go in there and change those unit economics in a really compelling way and make it so that we can afford to go uh, invest in the restoration of these, these ecosystems. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that, that perspective. And I, I know in some of our uh, email exchanges leading up to this discussion, uh, I shared with you a uh, concern I have personally about thinking that you know technology is going to solve everything and uh that the, the sort of human heart and compassion uh, piece is not important and i was so uh, delighted when you responded back to a couple of my emails sharing your perspective on on some of those issues that we might consider more philosophical or ethical in nature and before uh, continuing on and asking you about a few of these other amazing technologies i want to i want to just uh, you know take a kind of pause in the conversation and ask you about some of these uh, softer uh, aspects of ethics and philosophy and compassion and how does that how does that play into the work you're doing and into your decision making as a leader yeah I mean there's a lot of places to you know answer that question from you know one is that my mom is a Buddhist so definitely compassion and thinking about the suffering of beings has been a part of my upbringing and I see a lot of how we've constructed uh, the economy as a as a systematic um, you know source of suffering for all types of beings whether it's the fact that you know 95% of all mammal biomass on the planet is livestock that's crazy right more than 70% of all birds on the planet are livestock uh, that means all of wild birds you know all of wild mammals all of wild mammals less than 5% um, that's, that represents a ton of suffering and it's a suffering for everybody. But, you know, another lens on that is the automation lens. Like I, I, um, was part of the leadership team of Google X. So I worked on the self-driving car and there's a bunch of folks where it's like, you're taking away these trucking jobs. You're taking away these driving jobs. Like, what are we going to do? And yeah, I, I mean, I, I share this story like, um, Back in 2013, I got contacted by the government of Singapore. And I, I met a delegation of six folks from the government of Singapore. And they wanted to ask about autonomous uh, vehicles because they knew it's a thing that I'd spent some time on. And we sat down and we were kind of talking. And they gave this amazing explanation that I will never forget, which is they're like, okay, so Singapore is like um, we're a small country and we're fixed in size. We're not going to be able to double our you know, size. We're not going to invade some other space and get more land. And you can only build so tall before it becomes impractical. So we estimate that we can only increase the Singapore population by X more before it becomes too crowded for folks to be able to, to you know, live prosperous lives. So given that, we can't continue to grow our GDP via immigration. It means that the only way that we can become more prosperous as a nation is for everybody in the nation to become more prosperous. So we've done an analysis of all the low paying jobs in Singapore and the largest low, you know, the largest cohort of low paid workers that we have in Singapore are cab drivers. So, and this is back in 2013, this is before there was any kind of autonomous car available. But back in 2013, they're like, okay, so we've done this calculation and because of it, we've already 
uh, started a retraining program for any cab drivers that would like to kind of up level their skills into better careers. And as we start to reduce the supply of cab drivers, we would like to backfill them with autonomous taxi cabs. And I was like, just that little twist is so huge, right? In the US, it's like autonomous driving is coming. You know, everybody get out of the way or study a STEM career or we'll destroy you. And in Singapore, they're like, no, I mean, we care about the people first. And if you're not becoming more prosperous, we don't want to displace you. Yeah. Right. So, so let's, let's have the um, demand side of how many autonomous cars we want be a function of how much we've been able to adjust the supply side of how many cab drivers we've been able to graduate into other careers that they prefer. And I was like, that's such a human way to go approach automation. I freaking love it. Yeah. And, you know, in the U.S., we don't even bring up that type of discussion because we have a, well, we have a bunch of mythologies that we believe in, which are definitely not true. Yeah. One is that the invisible hand is moral or it will lead to moral outcomes. That's definitely not true. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the other thing is that, oh, you know, if technology is coming and humans just better get out of the way, like, no, no, we invent things and we build an economy to, you know, for the purpose of a healthy society, for the purpose of a healthy environment, that's what those things should be used for. We shouldn't just say, oh, well, sometimes society and environment are sacrificed mm -hmm. in the process of making a successful economy. Like, the, you know, society is a superset of economy. Environment is a superset of economy. Yes. Like, why would you prioritize the subset over the larger thing? That's right. So we're blowing it pretty hardcore on that front. And some of it is, you know, local to um, the U.S. or the West. And some of it is, um, yeah, inside of all of us in, in the systems that we've created. Yeah, absolutely. I so appreciate what you're saying. And uh, I will share with you and tell you a little more of, um, offline. I'm working on a writing project in which I take to task a, f a handful of these mythologies that we see particularly here in the United States um, that, you know, greed is good and, uh, uh, you know, winner take all and, and everyone else be damned kind of mythos that really has permeated, especially in the 20th century, as well as the 19th. A lot of the uh, uh, business behaviors and economic behaviors here in this great nation of ours. And uh, I'll, I'll share more with uh, you about that, Tom, uh, subsequent to our conversation. But I, I really appreciate your perspective. And it seems, you know, what the, the Singaporean government's doing in that uh, example is not only in a, a, a great uh, demonstration of, of compassion and a humanistic approach, but also means in terms of their economic management that they're not introducing or designing for the types of dislocations that we have seen in this country can lead to really troubling uh, outcomes and consequences. And you know, it's probably not lost on many folks that some of the uh, social turmoil that we're experiencing currently in the United States is the result of, or at least related to, some of these uh, dislocations that different uh, subsets of the population have been experiencing as various uh, tech sectors uh, advance and accelerate, right? Yes, and it's not even just in the tech sector. It's this mythology is everywhere. Yeah. And we have prioritized economy over society and environment, not understanding that it's the subset. If you have an unhealthy society and environment, you cannot have an economy. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for saying that, Tom. Well, let me, let me uh, ask you now about Iron Ox. Uh, and all, all of these uh, technologies, by the way, folks, you can find listed and discussed at uh, the website at oneventures.com. So uh, be sure to go there if you want to uh, not only read about these technologies, but also see images of them. So Iron Ox uh, really caught my attention. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so if you guys are familiar with Dutch greenhouses, like what the, what the Netherlands has shown is that um, a tiny country, so, so the Netherlands is a tiny country, it's the second largest agricultural exporter in the world. And it's like, well, it's obviously not because they have so much land. It's a super tiny country. But um, what they have been able to do is they've been able to show 
really consistent, high quality production using greenhouse agriculture. And what Ironox does is it basically, you know, leaps frogs off of that and says, well, what if you also add robotic automation to that setting as well? And then you end up with a setup where you are able to go and grow um, really healthy, really well cared for food, um, you know, at a fraction of the cost of what it currently costs to grow our, our food outdoors. And because it's indoors, you know, in the greenhouse environment, then you, you have a lot of control. You don't, you're not as worried about adverse weather events, which will be a helpful thing too, as the climate continues to destabilize. Um, so I think that an Ironox approach to things, so it's basically greenhouse automation, um, will allow us to go address the food security issues of the future. And relative to environment, there's an important element as well, which is we use 50% of the habitable land on the planet to feed ourselves. And, you know, things like the destruction of the Amazon, I think there's a, a misunderstanding from like movies in the 90s and stuff that, that's like, oh, it's all these, you know, uh, timber companies that are coming in and cutting it down. Because I, I think chainsaws are very, just very cinematic. But in practice, if you look at the numbers, it's single-digit percentages of the take of the Amazon comes from timber companies, you know, paper pulp timber. Um, the, the great majority, more than 90% of the destruction of the Amazon is to go, at, they don't even take the wood, they just burn it down in order to go plant soybean and graze cattle. And that's fully food production. And to the extent that we can do food production in a way that does not require us to just um, eat up, you know, because we already ate up 50% of the habitable land surface of the earth for food production, we can only eat up so much more of that. So like we kind of need to stop that and actually roll it back the other direction. Uh, and if you're familiar with, um, you know, the book Half Earth, then it basically kind of talks about like, well, if we could set aside half of the earth for, for, uh, for nature, then that would allow us to preserve more than 90% of the historical biodiversity of the planet. Yeah, Tom, I, I so appreciate um, you sharing some of this information, particularly about the Amazon. I, I feel that that's a really important one for folks to understand more. I want to ask you also as a follow-up, you know, many of our uh, friends and colleagues are devoting their entire lives and careers to the regenerative agriculture movement and are doing really important work uh, in those settings, often in, in temperate uh, regions. And I'm curious how your commentary and your vision for technologies like Iron Ox might uh, fit into a scenario that also includes other aspects of uh, regenerative agriculture or not, right? I'm curious what you see there looking out into the future. Yeah, so I think there's going to be, um, so I think regenerative agriculture is incredibly important. I think that there's going to be a interesting bifurcation, which is I would like there, you know, for factory farming to be fully replaced uh, and, you know, by cellular agriculture or plant-based alternatives. I would like for, um, you know, a bunch of our food production, especially the industrial food production, to be replaced by things like iron ox. Um, but you know, when it, but look, neither of those things directly regenerate the soil. But what it does is it alleviates a lot of the ecosystem pressure that we're creating through these extremely you know, unsustainable ways that we've been producing food. And I think relative to the, the rest of the food that we produce, if we can go do that in a way that is soil regenerative, if we can do it in a way that, is, that brings um, you know, community together, then like that is clearly preferable. And, and obviously in soil regenerative, you automatically get in there carbon storage and other things that, well, co-benefits like carbon storage, co-benefits co like stabilizing, you know, local weather patterns, you know, co-benefits like, you know, providing uh, community level resilience. Yeah. So there's gonna be many settings where that is the case. And, I, you know, I know it's really tough because everybody, especially in a, a um, you know, short attention span world, wants it to be like one answer that we can push forward and that'd be the answer for everything. But 
global agriculture is already a trifurcation, right? So there are, there's one fork of the trifurcation, which are all these folks that are, you know, in the lower resource nations working, you know, less than five acre plots. And then there is another part of the trifurcation, which are these massive, you know, 5,000, 10,000 acre plus, you know, um, uh, like uh, monocrops that we use for corn, soy, wheat, that kind of thing. And that is almost fully automated anyhow. That's just a huge tractor and one dude, or sometimes it's, it's an automated system and doing, uh, you know, 10,000 acres or more in a monocrop. And then the third trifurcation are the folks that are farmers that are working between like one acre and 2,000 acres uh, that, uh, that grow a lot of the food we eat. And what's funny is that the food we eat, we call them specialty crops. So like things like artichokes and garlic and whatever, things that can't be ground up into, you know, a, you know a flour or made into corn syrup or whatever. We consider that the specialty stuff. But in practice, it's like that's actually most of the food we eat. Uh, in the uh, in the developed world, in the developing world, it is the sub five acre farmers that are doing most of the growing. But there's already a trifurcation right now, and you got to go think about the update to all the forks in the trifurcation. And I think that gives you a more nuanced understanding of where things can go, because the trifurcation is also not accidental. There are both human and economic factors that make those the the thing that we've gone with so far. Yeah. Yeah, that that is really great to hear that explained so clearly. Let me um, move on here from Iron Ox to ask you about True. Am I pr pronouncing that correctly? It's pronounced Tro, Tro. Uh, but it's, okay. it's not a real uh, word. It stands for Thermodynamics Rules Everything Around Us. Okay. And and what is that? Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Oh, sure. It's a company, but yes, um, what they have done is um, PhD from Berkeley, um, you know, um, another from MIT, another from Stanford. They got together and they decided to reinvent the air conditioner from the ground up. And without getting into lots of details, the basic thermodynamic design of the air conditioner that we, air conditioners and refrigerators that we use today uh, was basically finalized in the 1920s. So we have not improved them at all in terms of just basic efficiency. You know, we style them differently, but like the the heart of the thing is very similar to 1920s tech. So That's they basically- the, the compressor condenser model or whatever that is, right? Yes, and using refrigerants that boil at a particular temperature in order to go, you know, okay. Uh, uh, and And doing that against kind of a Carnot cycle so, so anyway, that's all just the standard way that the guts of a refrigerator or air conditioner are put together. But uh, what Tro has done is they kind of took it from first principles and, and said, well, with modern approaches and manufacturing and a more modern lens on what we understand today, what can we do? And they have been able to put together a, a approach to air conditioning, which is 30 to 50% more efficient and therefore costs less to run. Uh, but also does not require any fluorine-based refrigerants and um, relative to those refrigerants has 6,000 times less greenhouse gas impact. Uh, so for folks that don't know, uh, you should read the book Drawdown. That's one thing because the very first thing in the book Drawdown is refrigerants are creating lots of greenhouse gas emissions and warming. And to, to put it into like a, a um, maybe a more relatable context, Refrigerants, which are called F-gases, uh, another way of, you know, it's a shorthand for fluorine-based gases. That's what the F stands for. Um, F-gases um, have about as much greenhouse gas impact as all of cars combined. So, you know, if we could go and redo how we do air conditioning and refrigeration, we could make a world where um, it's like we took all the cars off the road. And we especially want to work on this now because as the planet is warming up, then you're getting record heat waves in Northern Europe and places that didn't have air conditioning before are adding it. And, you know, you also have the, the middle class in India, you know, being able to afford this stuff now. And also um, in India, it's getting also unbearably hot. So even folks that are used to 100 degree heat, it's clocking in at 125 degrees some days. They're like, no, I mean, 
even with our cultural practices and our, you know, design for passive cooling and all the different things that we do to make, you know, a hot area livable, this is unlivable. So uh, there's going, we, we estimate that the number of air conditioners in the world is going to double in the next 10 years. Um, And we would like to get ahead of that and not have that be like doubling all the cars on the road. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, let me, uh, remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Tom Chi from At One Ventures. Uh, you can go to atoneventures.com uh, to get more information. You can also find info on Tom's work at tomchi.com, and his handle is at the good Tom Chi. Is that right? At the good Tom Chi? Yep. Um, C-H-E-G-O-O-D-T-O-M-C-H-I. Yep, and that's Instagram and Twitter. And I want to also thank the sponsors making our podcast series possible. Uh, That includes Earth Coast Productions, the Lidge Family Foundation, Alpine Botanicals, Purium, Earth Hero, Vera Herbals, Growing Spaces, Soil Works, Earth Water Press, 1% for the Planet, Dr. Bronner's, and Wele Waters. And of course, a huge shout out to all the individuals in our Why on Earth Community Network who have joined our monthly giving program. If you haven't yet joined and you want to, you can go to whyonearth.org, click on the donate button and get all that set up. And if you decide to give monthly at certain levels, uh, you'll get uh, shipments of the Waylay Waters uh, regeneratively grown hemp infused uh, aromatherapy soaking salts, salves and massage oil sent to you. Uh, as, as a thank you and a way to uh, boost your self-care practice. So a huge thanks to all of our sponsors and supporters. And uh, it's, it's really fun, Tom, going through these different uh, companies and technologies with you. And moving right along, I want to ask you about Cruise Foam. And, and when I saw the image, this one really uh, made me smile because I imagine some of our uh, friends and audience will really appreciate this one. Yeah, so cruise foam is basically a replacement to um, a type of plastic. So styrofoam and polyurethane foam can be replaced with cruise foam. And what cruise foam is made out of is um, a chitin biopolymer. So it it is made from, uh, and it can use any source of chitin, but the current source of chitin is um, shrimp shells from the from the uh, shrimp aquaculture and um, and shrimp fishing industries. Now, what's so interesting about this foam? Well, we're able to go produce this foam cheaper than petrochemical foams, Hmm. right? So like part of the reason that plastics have been so hard to displace and they're literally everything and in everything, um, everywhere and in everything, is that uh, the when you think about the cost of anything, you can think about it as the cost of the, the raw materials, like the feedstock, and plus the cost of the processing that's required to transform that raw material into whatever you know, um, thing you'd want to use it for. And you add those together, that's roughly the cost. Now, the petrochemical industry has had an unfair advantage in that the raw material for plastics is just a residual byproduct of, of you know, oil and gas refining. And it means that their feedstock cost comes in pretty close to zero. And it means that if you want to go displace uh, plastics in terms of costs, you need, to, you need your feedstock plus processing to be cheaper than just the processing cost on the uh, petrochemical plastics. And cruise foam does fit the bill. And we're basically hunting down um, alternatives for all seven major types of plastic because uh, you need to go fight that battle for every type of plastic. Uh, separately. So uh, cruise foam is kind of our cut at that for the styrofoam and polyurethane foam side of things. And the when you go make the stuff out of chitin biopolymer, it is fully marine degradable. It is fully soil degradable with no technical recycling. So you bury it in the ground, you throw it in the ocean, it becomes ocean and dirt, you know, in a month or two. That's so exciting. Wow. Very, very neat to hear about that. And how about, uh, tell us about Climax Foods. Climax Foods is basically like the Rosetta Stone to be able to go translate any um, animal-based food that you would like to replace with plant-based replacement. 
So there's been a bunch of companies that have like founded themselves on replacing a single product. So Impossible Burger is like, let's replace a burger. And, you know, um, you know, Calafia, it's like, let's replace dairy milk with nut milks. And like, you know, whatever, this is great. Like, let's replace those things for sure. But what um, Impossible Foods, um, yeah, sorry, what Climax Foods is doing is they have kind of created the Rosetta Stone so that you are able to go sample any animal-based food product and its algorithm will go calculate, here's the recipe of plant-based ingredients that will get you the closest flavor match possible. And they've been able to go do that. They're starting with cheeses, so they've already produced a whole line of cheeses um, that I've had a chance to taste because I get to go to the, the test kitchen and the cheese cave and all that sort of thing and try these things out. And the stuff um, just tastes amazing. I mean, it, there's been taste testers that in our, our trials who are like, I thought you weren't going to give me a dairy-based cheese. And it's like, we didn't. You're, you're, eating, the, you're eating the Climax Foods you know, cheese right now. And it just kind of blows their mind. Uh, but both in terms of being able to... So imagine you know, the following problem technically. Imagine there's thousands of plant-based ingredients that you could combine. Because in the global supply chain, there are roughly thousands of ingredients that exist in a large enough supply that's relatively easy to source uh, with a co-packer or to you know, uh, do food work with. Um, so imagine there's thousands of them. And imagine that you, know, you needed to figure out the exact recipe that combines like, the perfect you know, eight of them into something that's going to taste amazingly close to blue cheese or amazingly close to whatever, pick your animal-based product that you want to displace. Well, normally that would take, you know, 10 to 12 months in a test kitchen, iterating, trying, trying, trying. And then you end up with things that are kind of okay. You end up with a, a you know, plant-based mozzarella, which is mostly just starch and doesn't have any of the protein value, doesn't, but it tastes kind of all right. But what, what Climax Foods um, has been able to do it with exactly the same problem setting is, is they can go parse through, you know, billions of combinations of those thousands of ingredients in seconds, and they can go produce a recipe which is a way closer flavor match than what the you know, food scientists in these labs are able to do. In one, they can do it in one day. So it's just the difference between, do you want to take 12 months to make each plant-based product, or do you want the recipe today? And then what recipe do you want tomorrow? So I'm very excited because uh, I've tasted what's coming out of it, and it tastes incredibly close. And they are also able to just tweak a couple other variables. They did one tweak, and they were able to go um, replicate a cheese, but double the amount of protein in it and reduce the price of it by 3x. Yeah, wow. That's and amazing. that was just a tweak to the algorithm. It didn't take more time in a test kitchen. They just said, well, let's make price one of the important variables and not just perfect flavor match. Incredible. Well, let me just ask, uh, do you have a favorite of the cheeses that you've tasted so far? Hmm. I mean, I was born in Asia, so I'm no cheese expert, but the but the camembert, the blue cheese, they did like a a gouda, I believe. Um stuff is good. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. That's great. Well, I mean, that really underscores the advantages of rapid prototyping. I mean, that is that is, you know, orders of magnitude more rapid than the, uh, the more traditional approach. Yeah, absolutely. And of course you still want people to taste it on the other side of it, but like all of the stuff that, that is that slow experimentation process, they've collapsed that down by a factor of a hundred and then you can just get to the tasting and then see what people like. Yeah. And they have been really um, getting a good read too, in terms of where our, uh, which sort of flavor compounds there's more sensitivity and less sensitivity on. So some things where it's like, oh, within this band, a factor of three of saltiness, this all tastes the same to people. And then there'll be other parts where it's like, no, 1% more of this really changes everything. <laughs> so uh, we're learning a lot that is not obvious about how, how flavor works. Yep, I appreciate that. Well, I see your friend there, the cat keeps popping on and off uh, camera, it's, it's good to see you've got a buddy there with you. I cannot keep her from doing this, so I've stopped <laughs> trying to tell her yeah. to not do it. 
That's great. Let me ask you about Wild Earth. Can you give us a summary of what that one is? Yeah, so 25% of um, meat consumption in the U.S. is for pets. So cats and dogs primarily, but you know we got some other pets. But uh, I think there's like something like 100 million pets or something in the U.S. So it's quite a bit. So it under, it, understandably, they eat you know um, 20 to 25% of the, um, the meat demand. And what Wild Earth is, is it's basically a alternative way to feed your pets, uh, basically using um, yeast and fungi production in order to make a very nutritious, very high protein um, dog food kibble right now. And they're working on, on the other pets and they're working on lots of different variations there. But basically the, um, the dogs that have been eating Wild Earth, and it was also formulated uh, in concert with veterinarians in order to make sure it has a complete nutritional profile and that it's really good for the health of the animal because people would say, oh, you're going to make my dog a vegetarian? That sounds awful. It's like, no, 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 this is, this is well considered and well formulated. And, the, and the, the pets that have been having it, we, we took numerous surveys on this front and owners are seeing improvements in, um, I guess they... I guess the company calls them pet parents, so I will use that, that term. So <laughs> yeah. pet parents, you know, are noticing a improvement, uh, improvements in coat, energy level, digestion, and joints. So especially if your animal has trouble with any of those things, then you might want to go check it out. If your animal's totally healthy, then it's, you may not notice a difference. They'll just be eating slightly different food that doesn't require a bunch of animals. But, um, but if they do have an issue with any of those four things, then, then it might be um, a great thing to try out. Great. Yeah. And how about uh, Apis Core? Apis Core is a robot that can 3D print the masonry work on buildings. And they can, uh, they can do that work about 10 times faster and two times cheaper. And because it's a 3D printing approach that uses continuous extrusion of, of uh, cement, then it actually prefers a type of cement that's called geopolymer cement. And geopolymer cement has got about 90% less carbon footprint to produce. So uh, without getting into all the details, there's four industries that put together represent um, like more than 90% of the carbon emissions from industry. That's steel, aluminum, cement, and chemical separations. So uh, we're basically going after all of those. And, you know, to be able to go find a way to reduce the, the carbon footprint of cement production and the embodied carbon that's in buildings that we are, are producing, then it's kind of a big deal for, for global industrial emissions. And Apis Core gives you a really good reason to kind of shift over. Because geopolymer cements are well proven. They are in buildings today. We know them to be safe and stable and make a quality building. But because they cost a little bit more than, than Portland cement, which is the cement that is in almost all buildings around the world, and that refers to a formulation. It doesn't all come from you know, Portland, Oregon or anything. But, um, but it's like because um, it costs a little bit more than Portland cement, then Portland cement has won the whole industry. But like when it comes to um, Apis Core, because they do this continuous extrusion, which means they're like basically spitting out the thing, like you know somebody that's uh, using a cake decorator type thing, right? Because they're doing you know continuous extrusion, it actually works better with geopolymer cement, and because the the system is already ten times faster, two times cheaper, then you are hardly noticing the the you know the extra cost of geopolymer cement. Your project is still coming in forty to forty five percent cheaper. Uh, and you are now, you know, having 10 times less carbon impact. That's incredible. And are there any opportunities there for some of these emerging materials like hempcrete and working in some of the other plant-based uh, fillers and thermal insulators that folks are mixing into uh, things like concrete? Yeah, that, that, that can definitely work with this approach as well. So, mm -hmm. Um, and some of your listeners probably know all this stuff backwards and forwards, but just to give a little bit of distinction for the ones that don't, cement is kind of that binding material and it takes a lot of carbon to go produce. And then you add cement plus aggregates. 
So aggregates are kind of like crushed of gravel or rocks or local materials or, you know, it, you can also throw in hemp, you know, for hempcrete, you can, you can throw in some, uh, you know, insulating materials to go uh, save on, you know, improve the R value of your walls. Um, but basically the aggregate plus the cement equals the concrete. Yep, that's great. Thank you. And then uh, two more to ask you about. Um, second to last here on the list I've got is Finless Foods. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Yeah, they do cellular agriculture for bluefin tuna. So there are types of, so, you know, when we know how to farm it, we go, we take it too far. That's why 95% of the mammals on the planet are livestock, which is crazy. But, um, but when we don't know how to farm it, like bluefin tuna or all these wild caught species, then we still take it too far. We overfish them to the point that we collapse our fisheries. And then, um, yeah, actually, I guess we never go back and repair them. Uh, we just collapse them and stop fishing there for a little bit. And then nature tries to struggle back. Uh, so what Thinless Foods does is they, they start out with some tuna cells and then they, they multiply those cells in order to go make your tuna. And um, so that's an approach that's broadly called cellular agriculture. And what it, what it could mean, if it's successful, is that we can just stop doing wild-caught tuna, period. That we can let the, that species rest and return. And, you know, tuna, uh, I mean, w we don't think about it this way because we mostly eat it. But tuna is an apex predator for much of the ocean. So between tuna and sharks, like most of the ocean has one of those two as their apex predator or the combo. Uh, you know, marine mammals are a little bit higher up on the chain, but there's very few of them. We already, we already killed 97% of the whales on the planet and, you know, a huge percentage of the dolphins and other marine mammals. Like, we already killed them. So, like, uh, if we hadn't erased those, all of them, they would be the apex. But what's left of the apex is tuna and, and sharks. And we're fishing a lot of those away and killing sharks because we don't like them or for shark fin soup. So we're making a mess of things. Uh, so if finless succeeds, then we can make uh, sashimi grade tuna. So the very highest end, and of course, if you can do the high end, everything else is easier than that. But you know, sashimi grade tuna for less than wild caught market prices. And we can make it so it becomes non-economical to go and, and hunt tuna at sea. And eventually, you know, uh, we would want to use those sorts of techniques to go and, and stop all wild-caught fishing um, and just let the oceans rest for 100 years. Yeah, I really, that, that whole notion of letting nature rest is uh, not only an essential imperative, but also it's got a poetic ring to it. And I really appreciate you putting it that way. Um, well, Tom, last but not least, I want to ask you about SEMTIV. Am, am I saying that one correctly, the wind generators? Oh, yeah. So it's a vertical axis, uh, small-scale wind turbine, which you can use for residential, light commercial, and distributed infrastructure um, uh, applications. And you can imagine it's kind of like the, it's a unit similar to a solar panel, uh, but it gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of, of making your own choices about renewable generation. Because you can either wait for your grid to change, um, or if you got the sun or you got the wind, then you can just, you know, get it going. And SEMTIV is a very attractive because, uh, both because of how it's designed, it's designed very elegantly to be able to have a very um, small switch on speed before it starts to generate power. So you know, over three mile per hour of wind, it'll already start to generate power. Um, you know, at its, at its full speed, you know, then, then it's, you know, uh, we have two units, one that generates uh, 600 watts and the other one that generates 2.4 kilowatts. So it's substantial relative to the amount of power that a house uses. And, um, and also the cost of electricity generation over the lifetime is quite low because the units are also very robust. So we, we've never had one fail yet, but like, you know, I'd estimate like the mean time to failure of these things being like 30, 40 years. Wow. So you end up with, you know, 
you buy a thing once, you get you know decades and decades of of uh, power generation, and you do it at low cost, and it's a good compliment, you know, because um, the sun doesn't shine at night, but the wind can blow at night, and uh, you know, in a, a lot of times when the sun is not strong, the wind is blowing, blowing. So like a storm's coming in, sun's blocked out, your solar panels are doing nothing. Well, the wind is picked up with the storm, so. It can be a strong complementary um, uh, energy generation option. And for distributed infrastructure, it also helps quite a bit because, and this gets like um, a little in the weeds, but I think a bunch of your folks would care about this. Like when you go and make road access to an area, then you really invite a lot of industry to come in there, especially as you make the bigger roads to be able to come and extract all the resources. And this has been one of the big fights. Like just earlier this week, uh, we lost protection of the Tongass National Forest yeah. in, in uh, Southeast Alaska. And, and the Tongass had been protected both by that act and also because they had not made many roads that would make it easy for loggers to come in and, and take yet. But like to the extent that we can do distributed infrastructure around the world without having to do a lot of road infrastructure, we also you know, have that as like a, a barrier to prevent you know, uh, more aggressive resource extraction and development. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's quite a strong point there. And uh, just a quick shout out to our friends at WeCan, the organization that's been doing a lot of work to help protect uh, the Tongass. And uh, we've got a lot of work to do in that arena at this point. Well, Tom, it's it's been great visiting with you today. And before we sign off, I just want to invite you if there's anything else, any sort of general, you know, message or statement you'd like to make to our audience, uh, please, the floor is yours. Yeah, I mean, I'll share something that I just wrote in our quarterly report for our, our fund, which is about a month and a half ago in San Francisco, we all woke up to a sky that was like dark orange. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of expect it to get bright during the day. It did not. Like I, I went and ran an errand around noontime and it was so dark at noon that people needed to use headlights to drive. There's, it was, you otherwise could not, it was just too dark to drive. And that was followed by, you know, seven or eight days of completely unbreathable air. Like if you went outside, your eyes were stinging, your lungs were stinging within five minutes of just, you know, normal activity outside. And I know that during that time period, um, folks were feeling those dystopian feelings. Yeah. They were like, this is the, the end. Like, this is what our future is going to be like every single wildfire season. And even that is now, that season is extending to be longer. And now there's a counterpoint season on the other end of the calendar and da-da-da. And I had a lot of time to think because I was basically hermetically sealed in my, you know, you couldn't even open the window, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hermetically sealed in my place in San Francisco. Uh, so plenty of time to think. And it made me, you know, come up with this term, which uh, I call charging our trauma battery. And what does that mean? So if you think about um, the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, that was another time where we let things get out of hand. Wild speculation on Wall Street, terrible ecological practice in the heartland led to major ecological destruction and economic destruction. And it all came together uh, in the early 30s, the first half of the, you know, of 1930s. And in that world, people were standing for hours to get a crust of bread or some watered down soup. And they, and they watched their fields that were once verdant, you know, turn to dust and, and storms that they need to, that blocked out the sun. And um, one thing that you can say, though, about the generation that lived through that was that they were a generation that never wasted anything. So when people talk about their grandparents or their parents that lived through that time, it's like, oh, grandma will get a store from the, you know, get a bag from the store and use it 47 times until it's like tatters yeah. before it gets tossed away. And it's like, to me, what that meant is that collective trauma kind of charged their battery in a particular way. It made them well prepared for a particular type of challenge <laughs> of, not, of not using too much. And you look at how they stepped up in World War II. Because yeah. there was a lot of, you know, shortages in World War II, too. But that generation had charged its trauma battery and was able to go deal with those shortages and, 
and do what needed to be done. And when I looked at that red sky, you know, you know, after thinking about this for, during that week, I was like, that's what's happening right now. We are charging our environmental trauma battery. Yeah. We're having an entire generation understand what the damage looks like. And for some people, it might be the death of their coral reef or a red tide, which, you know, washes up a bunch of, you know, um, dying and toxic things on their shoreline. For other people, it might be a red sky where it's so dark you can't, you can't drive at noon. You know, for other people, it will be other ecological disasters, the permafrost melting and their houses like sinking into ground that had been stable for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And whatever the trauma is, we are creating a generation where our trauma battery is being charged. We are going to be ready to go fight through what needs to be fought through and love the things that need to be loved in order to see through to the other side of what I think to be one of the greatest challenges that humanity is going to face. Absolutely uh, beautifully said, my friend. Thank you so much, Tom. And uh, thank you for taking uh, some time today to visit with us. It's really appreciated. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for the, thanks for the invitation. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.